Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Brian and Kiona, the co-founder and managing partner and the general partner of Black Tech Capital, a Toronto-based pre-seed fund that invests in black and other underrepresented founders focused on clean tech, leveraging partnerships with top organizations, universities, and accelerators, and the manager's expertise, networks, and track record in growing several companies to 9x valuation increases. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review, and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Welcome to the European VC Podcast. Early in 2022, together with Uplink, a project by the World Economic Forum, we launched a challenge for innovative investment funds with a focus across at least one of eight key SDG areas, nature, ocean, plastics, climate action, circular economy, water, health, and education. This campaign, a partnership between Uplink, EUVC, Eisenhower Capital, and other great names, aimed to source and select innovative funds investing in purpose-driven startups around the world. Now, the European VC has always and will always be European-focused. But saving our planet is too much of an important topic for us to just stand idle. So today, we're proud to present one of the 17 funds selected that is mobilizing capital for people and the planet. We're welcoming Brian and Kiana from Black Tech Capital. So I'll put it out there. Why do you guys think, first of all, welcome. And why do you guys think you got nominated for this uh, project by Uplink? I think one of the reasons we got nominated is because of the very novel approach and very focused approach of our fund. We're focused on black and underrepresented founders in the clean tech space. So typically you see funds that just have one focus or the other. And I think just that that novel approach, that very focused, very focused thesis on where we're trying to help not only the climate and make a difference there, but help those that are typically more impacted by the climate. Because one of our beliefs is that Given that disadvantaged populations are the ones that tend to see more of the impacts from climate change, they don't have the same climate resilience. They're the ones that are probably going to come up with the solutions that are going to be affected them. And it's also solutions that can be used around the planet. And I think Uplink recognized that. And that's one of the reasons I believe we were selected. Let's step back a bit here and let's go for the origin story here. So Black Tech Capital, and we just heard you kind of give a quick teaser into the thesis there. Give us the origin story of the fund and how did the team come together? How did it come to be? And, and so we understand where everything, like how it came to be. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll add an extra question in there, which is, you know, as I started off by saying, this is called the European VC podcast. And here we are talking with two people who are not in Europe. So a, a kind of a broad question, just out of curiosity, do, do you guys do investments in Europe? How do you think about Europe? What have you been seeing? You know, just to understand also how you look at our beautiful continent here. So for myself, you know, when I was back, it's back in 2020, I was focused a lot on the sustainability area, the clean tech area with my business. And I realizing, you know, one company wasn't going to have enough of an impact, right? And that's when I started looking to see, you know, how can I make a bigger difference? How could I make an impact that went beyond just what my company was doing? And that's when I stumbled across a webinar called Venture Funds for Entrepreneurs and started looking into the venture space and saying, here's an area where I, could, I really feel I can make a difference. Through that, got into a program called VC Lab out of Palo Alto, California. We're part of Cohort 3. 
and really their launch with the thesis for Black Tech Capital focused on Black founders, underrepresented founders. As for myself, as I've been an entrepreneur, I've gone through a number of different businesses, and it was always a challenge with the funding. And it was, okay, how can I help those that don't really have access to the funding, don't necessarily have the backgrounds that they can go to? So focus there. And then I want to be able to not just be a check writer, I wanted to be able to go beyond that. So that's when... Uh, looked at the area where I was in, the sustainability, climate change area, and so focused on a venture fund, Black Tech Cap, for underrepresented founders in clean tech. Went through the VC Lab program with another general partner, which unfortunately that didn't work out. So put it out into the world that said, you know, I really want to find another female co-GP, right? I wanted that balance in the team between a male and female. Specifically, was looking for Black female GP that could bring her perspective to it. And through my networks, very, very fortunate to meet Kiana. So for context, I'm based in Birmingham, Alabama, which is definitely an interesting place to be right now if you follow American politics. But it always has been in terms of, you know, America's journey as far as like healing our society and addressing the racial inequities that have you know, we're the foundations, the economic foundations of this country. So as I like to say, my origin story is that I grew up in the South, Texas and Louisiana is where I'm from and grew up low income. And so when I went to college, I went to UC San Diego, really the question of how do I generate black wealth? It was on my mind because I wanted to understand why these income inequalities were present. And then I wanted to, even more importantly than understanding the problem, wanted to get a good grip on the solution and figure out my part in that. Uh, came across the concept of impact investing. I was like, oh my God, and like kind of ran with it. Got into Venture for America, which is this program for recent grads and it helps them get into the startup industries of like mid-sized cities. So Detroit, Baltimore, Birmingham, and a few other ones. And I came here to Birmingham to work for Bronze Valley, which is this venture investor, nonprofit venture investor that invests in minorities mostly in the state of Alabama and the South, but also throughout the country. The key there being that we would have a bias towards overlooked geographies within the country. So we would avoid the Valley, we would avoid New York, and we're looking and talking to these founders. And that became definitely intrinsic to how I approach venture investing. I wanted to go to the places where the feeding frenzy wasn't You know, I have no interest in moving to New York full time and trying to be competitive in that venture scene because it's kind of oversaturated where there's just this plethora of talent of innovation and bright minds who live in quieter, overlooked places like Boise, Idaho or Birmingham, Alabama. So Brian and I joined forces and we just super aligned on those priorities, finding overlooked people in overlooked places so to get back to your, your part of your question, that's definitely an area that we are interested in and are open to accepting talent from. And even more importantly, I think, is doing coalition work in those places. A lot of what we're doing isn't just finding talent, investing in them, make money. I mean, that's the idea. But the other things that we're doing in that are creating economic coalitions around North America and Africa and potentially Europe as well. And beautifully, Brian is going to kick that off for us when he goes to Europe soon, what, in like a week? So we're definitely optimistic about that opportunity and looking forward to building economic coalitions and strengthening what we're able to do for minorities, not just in North America. 
Could I ask you the toughest question? <laughs> Maybe. At least this is what I always say to anyone who I'm feeling has a bit of a wide mandate, which is how do you make sure that you are the go-to fund for the founders in your space? Because you did say now North America's and Africa, and then we're definitely open to Europe as well. I'm sure that we had some <laughs> European listeners thinking, yeah, yeah, all good, you're open to Europe. You're not going to win the best deals in Europe if that's the uh, approach to Europe, right? And this is you coming on on a podcast that's very European-focused, right? And if there's anything that makes people in Europe tickets, the uh, the Americans thinking that they fly over to Europe once in a while and then they get the best deal flow, right? Yes, that's maybe how it is for the very best funds that have established brand names for years and years, but it's a tough market to break into. So I'm curious to hear your take on that question because I'm sure our audience has also sit, been sitting here with, with that in mind. So one, I'd like to push back on the fact that we have a wide mandate. We don't. We're like probably the only firm. I've yet to come across another firm that is as acutely focused on the intersection of climate tech and minorities as we are. And that gives us a real edge with those minority founders. The investment that we have made was a founder that was, I want Black investors on my cap table. And this is not unique. Minorities want people who look like them who will be in their corner on their cap table. So I think from my conversations with Europeans, including like I've got a few black friends in France who have given me this intel, as well as some other VCs in Europe that have echoed the same sentiment. Europe likes to think it doesn't have a racial inequity problem, but it does in terms of how people are treated and other systemic barriers. Is it as bad as over here? Probably not. <laughs> That's a high bar. You got to get pretty bad for that. But there's still problems and there are still minority founders who are brilliant, who will make the space for us to get on their cap table. And we know that they will because they've done it. And the other thing I'll add to that is I mentored a number of different programs, including Founder Institute, which, you know, is worldwide and Techstars, right? Right now, I sit on Techstars global bench team for any clean tech companies. And I have founders right now in England, in the UK, that reached out to me that I've mentored and I'm coaching. And, you know, as Kiona alluded to with our first investment, they asked us to come on their cap table, right? So when you talk about being able to get the founders, we start working with the founders, we start mentoring them, we get to know them. And nine times out of 10, they're asking us to invest in them, not just for the check, because but because they want us, right? They want our expertise. They want our lens. I mean, as Kiona said, the lens of being myself, a black entrepreneur, Kiona, you know, with her experiences and other stuff, they feel that it's understood to get them, get where they're coming from. And I don't see any trouble in obscuring any deal around the world where founders that connect with us. So right now we have more the problem of saying no than trying to find stuff to say yes. The deal flow is not our issue no matter where it's coming from. The other piece I would add is, I mean, the European focus is twofold. It's, it's you know, finding deal flow from Europe, but especially when I look at, just take the Canadian lens. Canada's a small country of 38 million. I've already started working with people over in Europe in terms of finding places for our companies to grow and expand into. So it is not just about investing in opportunities in Europe. It's about bringing opportunities from here over to Europe, I mean, one of the companies we're talking to, they're already in lot of discussions with Schneider from France, right? And that is going to be their first potential customer. So playing in a European space is something that 
I've been doing uh, from day one in sort of the discussions with the fund. Could you share a bit more on the investment strategy of the fund and also, you know, just reiterate that the size of the fund, the, the size of the portfolio you're looking to build, are you going to be lead investors or, or primarily co-investors? How, how do you think about it? So the fund size, 15 million is the one five million is the target fund size, 15 million Canadian. We're investing at the early seed stage. So we're looking to invest in about 15 to 20 companies and very happy to be the lead investor. In fact, I sit as a venture partner in another fund where I help with a lot of the due diligence. So to be able to go through review deals, understand where they're going and at early stages, you know, it's mostly about the founders, right? And what they're able to do and what they're able to pivot. And so bring a lot of experience working with that. So yeah, we're happy to lead them. I have two questions, very different questions. One is coming back to the Europe topic and another one is, is in strategy and thesis. So let's start with the latter. Climate is a, is a big space. <laughs> There's a lot you can do in climate. What are you guys seeing that excites you uh, within the climate space? Right? Because we have interviewed quite a few climate-focused funds with very different views on it, stemming from the urban stack to uh, the crossover between Web3 and, and climate. Right? There's a lot of exciting stuff. So what, what I like the core is that, that you're excited about as a fund. Mm, there's so many opportunities. Like climate tech is huge. I appreciate you acknowledging that because I think when people say climate tech, you know, people get an idea of like, trees and computers and not much past that. But within it, if there is innovation that is reducing carbon emissions or helping communities adapt to the coming changes, then we're looking at it. And one of my favorite things is fashion tech. And things within the fashion industry that are either addressing the production cycle, making the supply chain more ethical, making sure that, you know, people are getting paid what they're worth and what they should be getting paid or making things out of better, more durable, longer lasting materials. There are so many things within that space. And one of the founders that we've been talking to, she's got an excellent innovation. I don't know how much I can say. But <laughs> probably you shouldn't say much. <laughs> yeah, so I'll just be like, yeah, it's fashion tech. Um, and it does so many great things, but it is an exciting opportunity. And I'm a sustainable fashion nerd. So I'm very excited to see the way that space unfolds because I think, as far as consumerism goes, we're not really in a place where we're going to walk that back. Because when ideally, you know, people just stop buying fast fashion, I don't think it's going to happen right now. Or I think we're a few years maybe 10 or 20 away from that. So in the meantime, there are things that we can do to lessen the impact that industry has on the earth. And founders have done some really cool stuff about it. I really want to hear your take on that because now you said I'm very much against the existing fashion industry, right? It's ridiculous what we're doing. Our consumption habits is ridiculous. And now you said 10, 15 years before, and I guess you mean before that the industry changes, you know, significantly? Or do you mean, what I've been thinking is why don't we wake up to, stop this fast fashion trend because i don't know how much clothes is being thrown out and and that's even in the house that's in the houses then there's in the process where they're not even selling it because it, and they'd rather dump it you know? I, i remember being shocked because my, my first entrepreneurial kind of stunt was in fashion tech i can't remember the numbers what Andrea said maybe maybe you have them top of mind Chiara, but i remember i was shocked when i heard 
the amount of waste within fast fashion was way above 50%. It was like 70 or whatever. It was ridiculous. I was super shocked. I don't know if you have that data. Yeah, because yeah, the easiest solution would just be everybody stop. <laughs> That's how consumer behavior works. So <laughs> so what do we do with the reality that we have and what we know and how we know people behave? Because it would be wonderful if people just were purely buying things secondhand or buying clothes that were verified as far as their supply chain being ethical and whatnot. And so I think it's going to be a combination of like private innovation, better regulation from our governments, and either de-influencers, meaning people who are showing you how to do things with what you already have or with limited resources, the repair industry growing, which it has, you know, people are the movement for the right to repair has been gaining a lot of traction. And that's more for like electronics and whatnot. But the sentiment of we should repair what we have in our culture is growing. That is something that I see more of on TikTok, on Instagram. So that's encouraging, but it's still a drop in the bucket. I've known about fast fashion as the plague that it is since like middle school and told a friend about how bad Sheen was. And that was like a few weeks ago. And that was the first time she was hearing about this. And I was like, so I think it's easy when we get in our niches to be like, change is coming. All we have to do is inform the public. <laughs> it's actually 25 of y'all. And you have to like, go. and then when you step out of that, you get perspective. You're like, oh, wait, there's going to be some massive changes that have to happen. And those are going to take time. So it's going to be cultural movements. It's going to be innovation. It's going to be government regulation. And hopefully those things working together will create a fashion industry that looks a lot more like what it did at the beginning of, I was going to say before the 80s, but that's still industrial revolution, which isn't that great. A fashion industry that's hyper-local, that prioritizes new innovative designers, that, you know, allows people to be creative without being wasteful, that, God, I would love to see polyester just die. I would love to see like, that fabric just disintegrate. So, yeah. That's that's my answer to that. And, and to add to that, David, you know, when you're talking about, you know, how much is wasted, the founder that Kiana was talking about earlier, she was working in Denmark. And it was during the pandemic when she couldn't even get into their warehouse because it was stuffed so full of clothing that was going to be just thrown away. Right. And so given she was inside the industry, inside, I mean, you know, a lot of the big fashion houses come out of Europe. So. You know, that is where her focus is and is saying, wow, this has to change. You're looking at somebody that was inside the industry. She was one of the big buyers for them and say, this is why I'm taking this on. This is why I'm changing it. I was looking at Vogue magazine and they're just in the last three years, they now have an annual conference talking about sustainability and how to bring that into fashion. So it is changing bit by bit. Kiana took us into a little rabbit hole here of the fashion industry. Which one would you like to take us into? <laughs> My favorite is waste, right? It's the area that nobody wants to talk about, right? In terms of garbage and waste. And, and I look at waste as we threw away so much stuff, but a lot of it is a gold mine. So how do we reclaim what's being thrown away? How do we even go in to existing landfills and extract some of the stuff? And, you know, you bring it back to Uplink. I can't remember the name of the um, uh, child innovation or the company that was they were spotlighting, but she was out of India and she was going through in the landfills there and taking up the waste and turning it into furniture, right? So I think 
the waste industry and reclaiming what's already been thrown away and going in and reclaiming these landfills and, and extracting heavy metals out of there instead of mining them out of the earth. It, that to me is an industry that's just ripe for the picking and it's not sexy, right? It's not Web3, it's not Bitcoin, it's not any of those sexy areas. So, but I think it's a huge untapped potential. It's a testament to the unsexiness of our podcast that I think the most sexy topic we have when asking people, what do you love that no one else loves? It's always waste <laughs> management. <laughs> so, I think our audience or at least our guests are the most boring people on earth. <laughs> boring is profitable. Amen. <laughs> Well, well, I'll take that comment by Kiana to maybe ask Brian a, a bit of a, a tough question in the sense of wearing the devil's hat or here or whatever, you, whatever that expression is in English. Of you know, I, I very much agree with what you said, but I do think it can also easily come across as a bit too kumbaya <laughs> from the sense of, of of helping each other out. And maybe my question is, how would you make the case towards uh, an LP as an example of investing in waste being something that can provide venture-like returns? Because I do find that not the most easy conversation to have, especially with, with people who are a bit more skeptic or haven't done any investment in the space yet. So I'd love to hear your take to that. Going back a little bit to our approach, right? When we're looking at companies, we tend to like companies that are doing B2B, right? The consumer market, in a lot of cases, very difficult to manage to predict and where it's going. So when I'm looking at, say, waste, for example, and I'll talk specifically, give a specific example. So here. there's a company here in, in Canada, just outside of Toronto. They're the largest plastics recycling plant in, in the Canadian landscape. Early last year, the price of reclaimed plastic exceeded the price of virgin plastic. And they just could not get enough of the plastic to be able to produce everything they're producing. And they started the company from scratch and built it to such a level that they also make their own water bottles. And they use 100% recycled plastic. And one of the founders of this company, she was sitting at a table beside one of the executives from Coca-Cola. And he said, oh, you've probably just got this small little operation that you can do 100%. When she told him the scale, she said, all of a sudden, a couple of weeks later, uh, Coca-Cola had a target to recycle 40%, to use 40% recycled plastic. So it's when you don't see the opportunities, to answer your question specifically, that you don't know how big the opportunity is. There's a massive opportunity is that in recycling plastic. There's a massive opportunity in, you know, we're going into this new EV landscape and recycling batteries. You know, you've got a company out there uh, right now that's able to do 75% of a used EV battery, we have a founder that we're talking to that she's capable of doing 98.5% reclamation of what's out there. So to me, that's where the opportunity is in waste, and it's huge, right? And so, you know, that company I was talking about that do 75%, they just went to IPO back in 2021. And here's another company coming up that we're looking at that we know can exceed what they're already doing. You know, when I show LPs, I said, here's the example. Here's the dollar figures that it's capable and it's and it's massive, right? Another team that's also coming to Vilar is, is 2150. And they're an impact fund as well, but they're a 270 million euro fund. And, but they're global as well. You know, and I'm saying as well because you are really global almost, right? And I'd love to ask you because they are very thesis driven. And I really get that when you're doing something that's so 
technologically heavy that you would go and say, okay, we're hunting it within these verticals and we're hunting specifically for companies that do X, Y, or C or going to solve problem X, Y, or C. Is that how you think about it as well? Or is it more opportunistic to you? And you then, you spoke about it, Kiana, that, that you're building strong ecosystems around you in each of the different areas and then they surface deals to you. I think you call them coalitions. I'm, I'm curious to hear how you think about that whole opportunistic versus investment thesis driven hunting method? I think it's a bit of both for us. So opportunistic primarily in that, you know, if it's got a climate tech uh, lens and one of the founders is a minority, which we define by either race or gender status, then we're looking at it, you know, and we're open to that conversation. Could could I just, uh, just because when you said that, uh, are women, is that a gender minority in your, in your, uh, yeah, because when I say minority, I mean like both across, of you. Like, both of you are nodding, and in VC, to anyone listening that doesn't have that number present, that's two percent of the capital uh, <laughs> that goes to women. So absolutely, it makes sense. I uh, just wanted to double click on that, and make sure everyone understood. Yeah, hundred percent women founders count and are underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they do. Um, so in that aspect, we are opportunistic, but then internally, we have our biases, where there are industries that we'll spend more time learning about you know, we're either planning to or have gone to conferences related to those or are in online communities related to those things. So our knowledge will be deeper in some of the verticals that we're biased towards, like fashion tech, like waste. But that doesn't stop us from having other conversations. And a big part of like our strategy, and Brian can definitely expand on this, is partnering with colleges, universities, and, you know, accelerators, incubators and whatnot that are all over the place now, because they are already doing the work of not just attracting that deal flow, but crafting it, fine tuning it. And then we're able to, through those partnerships, see people who have already passed some kind of test. You know, it's not just a guy with an idea who's coming to us with a PowerPoint. You know, it's like, oh, OK, you have an LLC and what's it called? You have a pilot um, or in a wait list, you know, like you have something substantive behind your business. So in that aspect, those relationships allow us to be opportunistic. But when we're going deep into the verticals that we're biased towards, that's when we're able to be more, I'm hesitant to say this, but like a, sh- a shadow thesis. So we'll listen to everybody, but we do have our biases. A very big part of what we do is getting to know the founders first, right? If we don't have the time, we're not looking for a deal and saying, oh, shoot, we got to get on this one right away. You know, we're not worried about, oh, this opportunity is going to pass. We want to get to know the founders. We want to get to understand them, understand who they are and understand their technology. So when you say like, this is the part that focuses what we're doing in the biases. If we don't think we can help that founder succeed, either through our strategic connections or because we understand the industry enough, they're not the right fit for us and we're not the right fit for them. We have partnerships with certain universities. I work very closely with the University of Toronto, Toronto Metropolitan University, and also uh, Howard University in the US. And if between that, we can find some way to help refine or because of all our different industry connections, you know, being over 30 plus years in the energy industry, I've got a lot of deep connections there. That's a big part of what we can do. So if we can't help them, it's not the right company for us. So I, I want to come back to my uh, first question when I said I had two questions. So we started off by talking, you know, Europe from a, a deal sourcing perspective. Then, Brian, you also shared a bit about 
I think about Europe in terms of helping your, your companies grow and scale. I'd like to talk about your LP base and you know how successful you've been in building a network of LPs around you and ask you specifically about, did you manage to make it as diverse as you would wish initially? And when I say diverse, I mean, of course, geo. So I'm interested to knowing, could, could you get European LPs even though you're not a European-focused fund? Yes or no? Did you even try? Do you even care, right? But then also, I'm curious, you're investing in overlooked founders, let's put it like that, or minorities. Did you also manage to attract decision makers on the LP side that are also representative of those profiles? Yes or no? Because some funds have done that quite successfully, and I find that really exciting. And then finally, the, the good old standard LP diversification question, you know, institutional versus non-institutional, high net worth, family office. I'd just love to hear you talk a bit about the LP base you managed to attract around, around the thesis and strategy. So we're still building. So the LP base that we retracted, I've had a lot of discussions with European LPs, some high net worth, a couple of family office. We've not attracted any yet into the fund, right? From the fund perspective, we have attracted high net worth individuals. Overall, they're people that are aligned with our mission, right? So We've attracted that, we've attracted a family office, and we are in discussion with institutional investors. We have not uh, landed any institutional investors yet. To be fully transparent, we do have a challenge within the underrepresented communities in getting investors there yet. And, And the challenge is they don't really understand this space, right? The VC space in general. So there's a, a few of us here that are now, shouldn't say that, don't understand the VC space in Canada. In the US, it's different, right? So that part is is building and growing. In Canada, um, there's a few of us that are working to do the educational piece on that, you know. But on the US side, yes, we, you know, we're getting the attention from, I think the word is from, from underrepresented groups, you know, to put money into uh, the new term I heard, underinvested founders. And that's, and that's where we're looking to focus. So, Still, you know, I can't say we have a, a big track record of, oh, yeah, we've done this, this and this, but uh, we're seeing things moving. On the U.S. side, though, the situation is different in that the LPs here are very well versed on the venture space. It's very popular over here. And the conversations that we have and are having are with diverse LPs, so including some black ones. So promising things on this side of the border as far as diverse LPs go. Brian, you said something that I find interesting because you connected it to um, education slash knowledge slash, you know, knowing the space. And and if I think about what we're doing ourselves, right, so we're building syndicates to invest into the asset class. And when I look in, inside, in fact, we do have an underrepresentation of the same minorities as the industry. And I struggle to get it because, and I was having this chat this morning with another guy who was also building community. So if, if I host a meetup in London, I'll actually have a great representation in terms of gender diversity. That, that is actually quite easy. But when I tried to fundraise for a syndicate, then suddenly I have a really hard time. And, and I've, I myself, very personally, I've been struggling with understanding why and how we can solve for that. But I guess what you're saying at the end of the day, it's, it's just being acquainted with the asset class and, and feeling comfortable with investing. And that's where you are personally focusing your time in terms of, of getting these LPs to convert. It's part of it. I mean, I'll give a, a concrete example here for the Canadian landscape. BDC, the Business Development Bank of Canada just launched a half a billion dollar, $500 million venture fund focused on women entrepreneurs. At the same time, they're also putting money through one of our, someone that we are partnered with to get him to, he's running a program, he's had it for a while, but just building it out 
where they're paying for women investors to learn how to invest into this space. So this is not just from minority groups, racialized groups. Women investors are also underrepresented as well. And, and a big part is education, right, about the asset class. So part of our mission is how do we help to encourage that and be part of that education to bring in the types of LPs that we want? Because, yeah, we want more women LPs. We want LPs from different diverse backgrounds. Right? And that education is missing. Hopefully we can play a role a bit with our podcasts. That one can hope. Hopefully so. I mean, it is more things like this. I mean, I don't know what your audience base is, but I mean, if they're potential, if women LPs out there, women investors, yeah, they, you know, listening to podcasts like this, educating themselves, coming in more, learning more about the space, all amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. We are reaching the end of the episode, Kian and Brian, and we always end with a quick fire round. And since we've, deep dived into spaces that you guys are excited about. I have to improvise a question, which I will. <laughs> so when we were talking about fashion and waste, Kiana made me re- remember a book I, I thoroughly enjoyed, which was about zero waste. And I can't remember the exact name of the book, but it was a great read for me. By those two guys? Not by a lady, a blonde lady, I think. It's a white cover book with green uh, lettering or green and orange lettering, I think. So my question to both of you, first question of the quick fire round, one book recommendation. What would you share with our audience? Ministry of the Future. For me? Uh, that was first. Well, no, <laughs> that was the first. <laughs> I quickly fired. It ran straight. <laughs> Which one did you say, Kiana? Sorry, I couldn't get it. Oh, Ministry. Uh, I, I think I might be butchering that. But uh, Ministry of the Future or for the Future. Sci-fi, I think, gives us a great lens or scope into one of our possible realities as far as technology goes and how the culture will be impacted by it. Huge fan of the genre. And that's um, one to read. Brian, yourself? A book called End of Craving, really talking about the food industry and how the different additives that we have in foods, even, you know, we're, a lot of us are very familiar with the different sugar additives, but there's so yeah. many more fat additives that yeah. we don't know. And our bodies really just don't know how to process all these fake stuff. So, I mean, it was an eye opener for me in terms of all the stuff there. So it's a book I highly recommend. I just... It's one, you know, nonfiction, and I'm usually, a, a, you know, a fiction book I'll pick up and just fly through. This one, I actually did the same thing because I just found it such a great read or a great listen. I don't read anymore. I listen to audiobooks, <laughs> audiobooks podcasts, you know, <laughs> there you go. You're my best friend now. I love, I, <laughs> I listen to everything. <laughs> second, second question of the quick fire. Brian, I'll start with you this time. Top tips for emerging VCs who are out there fundraising. Don't give up. It is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Right. And I know people keep saying it, but you really have to be prepared for it. Right. And, you know, stick to your thesis, stick to what you believe in and make sure that you understand what you're going after. Right. Don't just say, oh, I want to get into this space because I think it's cool and sexy because I have a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, we want to get into VC and do this. Yeah. Be prepared to do the work. Right. Be prepared to run that long race. Uh, people should be forced to listen through uh, 10 of our episodes. If they still want to do VC <laughs> and still think it's exciting, then go on. <laughs> you might get How convenient, exactly. Kiana, anything to add? Top tips? Be creative. Uh, the way to minority emerging uh, VCs in particular, the ways that um, other people have done it may not be the way that is going to work for you. So, for example... Mac, the VC, um, raised his whole fund on Twitter. We're not Twitter people and we're not doing that, but <laughs> that is a creative approach to uh, building an LP base. And um, yeah, be creative, be persistent. Third and final question, Kiana, let's start with you. 
What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in the venture industry? Hmm. Ooh, okay. So I think the venture, the Valley in particular is a very interesting case. Well, Silicon Valley right now is a very interesting uh, status that it has in that there's definitely, I think, been a fall from grace, especially as like these major companies, especially Fangs doing all these layoffs. So um, I would say, and so a lot of the darlings of the venture industry are like <laughs> kind of like exploding in our faces right now. I would say go slow. That's the counterintuitive thing. I came into the venture world at the end of the bust. So the lessons that maybe were inherent before just aren't relevant anymore. Go slow, take your time, do the due diligence, and really think about what happens if this company wins. Also, make sure they're profitable a lot earlier on. <laughs> right. Anything, anything to add from your perspective? Counterintuitive learning since you've been in the industry. I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but you know, when I see there's a lot of hype uh, behind something and, and everybody wants to get on board, it's not necessarily a good thing. And I'd say don't be afraid to lead. If you're following somebody else, you're following the hype, you're following what everyone else is doing, and you haven't necessarily done your own homework and figured out if this is the right thing for you and the right thing for your fund. I, I know a lot of funds want to follow along, and I think it's it's better to lead, right? Because then you know what you're getting into and you know what you've done the due diligence to make sure it's the right thing for you. You said it wasn't counterintuitive, right? Or maybe it wasn't counterintuitive, but it's definitely counter normal behavior in VC. <laughs> yes. So, so let's leave it at that. Thanks a million for joining us, Brian and Kiana. It was awesome having you on. And Brian, we're looking forward to seeing you next week in Villar. Looking forward to it as well. It should be great. You know, and we've, uh, we actually got uh, some grant money into our fund that's going to allow us to do some more traveling and stuff. So next time, both of us can be there. Ah, that is a privilege. <laughs> Give us some grant money. <laughs> We found a very aligned family office that decided to not only make a, a significant investment, but they're making a significant grant into the fund to help us to do more operational expenditures. So we're very pleased with that one. And they didn't take uh, 50% of the management uh, company. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thanks a million, guys. Thanks a million for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.